Well, I would ask you to return again to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study of Luke and this wonderful Gospel. If you're new here, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, thought by thought. We like to study through books of the Bible here, and, uh, and we are here this morning looking at verses 9 through 14 of chapter 18. And I would just like to open our time in prayer here. Just bow your head with me. God, I thank you for the privilege we have to be in your word. May it continue to shape us and mold us to people who love you and love others and live to make you known. Thank you, God, for this great privilege we have. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've come here to Luke 18. And, and this is a wonderful chapter of the Bible, and oftentimes people miss the value of this chapter, and they miss the heartbeat of it. You see, Luke 18 obviously falls after Luke 17, right? That's kind of no duh. But at the end of Luke 17, the issue on the table is the return of Jesus. And what he's saying is, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And, and you've got to be ready for my return and Luke 18 teaches us how to be ready for that return. And what's most fascinating is that oftentimes in the Bible, when we deal with the return of Jesus, people miss the thought. They, 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 they want to focus on the, the timing and the day and, and the descriptions of the return of Jesus. But a lot of times people miss the reality that Jesus spends more time telling you how to be ready for his return than he does giving you the signs. Because when he comes back, he wants you ready. Now the focus of 18 then is he begins to tell them how to be ready. Because, and so the way he does this in the first section, we looked at this last week, in the first eight verses, he says, listen, you've got to trust God as judge. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to get bad for you. It's going to get rough. And as you go through life, you can't go through life bitter. You can't go through life blaming everybody, mad at everybody, all disjointed because things are being done to you that are unfair. He says, when, you, when that happens, turn it to prayer. Constantly keep turning it to prayer. Keep bringing your life of prayer before the Father continually, and you won't lose heart. The focal point for him was when he comes back, he wants you trusting God as judge. He's the judge. He will make things right. Bring it back to him. And then he gets, and he says, if you don't pray about this, you're going to lose heart. And then we get to this very interesting thing at the end of verse 8. He says, now when I come back, will I find faith? When I return, will I find people who understand and are walking by faith, who are ready for my return? The first element of faith that we see there that we looked at last week is faith is trusting God as your judge. But he wants to take faith one step deeper now. Now we have another parable that comes in. And in that parable that comes in, he's saying, listen, I'm going to explain to you something about faith. Faith is not only trusting God as the judge, but faith is also not trusting yourself. Not trusting yourself. You've got to understand, when I come back, faith is going to be the issue. That's what I'm looking for. That's the rescue. That's the way out. That's the way that, that everything by itself, absolutely, how, how life itself will be measured. Are you walking by faith? 
So now we have to understand that faith is something deeper than just trusting God and judge, which is huge. It's also not trusting in yourself. And this is what he focuses on now in the account we have today. The focus of the account today is that faith itself is, is, is such that now I have to realize that I can go through life and I can say God is my judge, but I can also just go through life completely trusting in myself and not know it and be deceived in that. And that's what we're going to be looking at here today in this account. Now, how do you know if you're trusting in yourself? What's the issue? It's very simple. This parable gives it to us. And it's this. I'll give you the secret right away. The way you know if you're trusting in yourself is if you measure people by you. If you become the standard of measurement by which you evaluate people and evaluate your life. Now, I'm going to unpack that. But that's the issue here. What's the standard of measurement? Now, that standard of measurement, if you're trusting in yourself, you're going to have what's simply called a comparative heart. A heart that says, I'm looking at my life in comparison to you. Rather than saying, I'm going to bring my heart before God and leave it there. If your heart is before God and you've left it there, you're walking by faith, you have nothing to worry about. If you live in a comparative heart, it's bad. And we're going to look at that today. So this is why I've broken this parable up into just two points. A comparative heart. We're going to see that a comparative heart is a condemned heart. But we're going to see that a contrite heart is a justified heart. And of course, in this comparison, we have a Pharisee up against a tax collector. And the Pharisee is going to represent the comparative heart. And, and here's what I want you to get from today. Two things. First is this. I want you to find your inner Pharisee. Because we all have one. We all have this little comparative side to us. So we're going to dig down deep inside. We're going to find that inner Pharisee and we're going to exercise them. Get rid of them today. And the second thing I want you to do then is to actually find and rest in and enjoy the mercy of God. And to actually walk in that mercy and to know all of the peace and the hope that comes from walking in the mercy of God rather than walking in a comparative heart. So let's jump in. Let's unpack this so it makes sense to you. Let's look here at the comparative heart. Look at verse 9. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I want you to notice he says he also told them. So this is all connecting the dots. The issue is Jesus says, I'm going to come back. When I come back, fire's coming down. I'm bringing judgment with me. But if you want to be ready for that day, as you wait for that day and all the injustices happen, pray, pray always. But also, I have this parable. I want to tell another parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And as a result, they treated others with contempt. It means this, that they have looked at their life, they have compared it to the world, have found themselves content in that. And as a result of that contentment, they begin to start pulling away and looking down on others. They have developed a judgmental heart. Now to kind of repeat what I've already said, just to kind of make the point, this comparative heart is basically this. Whether you know it or not, you end up making yourself the standard. Now you might say that you make Hey, could Jeff, are you in here? Would you mind telling the lawnmower guy 
to kill the lawnmower. It's just pulling my ear enough to distract me. I appreciate that. I'll finish it for him if he needs it. Done. If he's got to go somewhere, I'd love to ride one of those zero-turn mowers. But, uh, but that would be helpful. Thanks. Appreciate that, brother. So the issue here is that you have this standard. Now, you might say, well, you know, the person who's trusting in themselves, they might be saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm trusting in the Bible. But the reality is, and we're going to see this in a minute, it's the deception of trusting in yourself is this, that you have taken the Bible, you have applied it in your life, and your application becomes the standard upon which you measure everyone. Now, Jesus is telling a parable to people who are in this situation. Now, you got to notice something about the people who he would be talking to. The people that he would be talking to would be his disciples. What you have to notice about this parable is that this is not told with Pharisees necessarily. You know, there could be Pharisees in the room because they had asked them about his return. And so he's got some Pharisees, but he also has some disciples. And one of the things that's interesting to note here is Luke does not say he's speaking directly just to the Pharisees. What he's saying is it's to anyone. Because this issue is a human problem. Okay, so now let's look at the parable. Let's unpack it here. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we've got to catch the contrast. I think you could figure out the, the tension in this room, right? But just to make sure we're all there, we know what the Pharisees are. Pharisees were individuals that, that followed the law of God. They sought to apply the law of God in their life completely thoroughly. So if the law of God says, don't steal, they wouldn't even borrow something from you lest they forget that they had it in their house and they inadvertently stole it from you. I mean, they were really serious. These people were intense. And the law of God was everything to them. They lived for it. Everything. They raised their children in it. These are great neighbors. And they just, they, they would never externally did anything wrong. Now we have this. Then we have a tax collector. Who's a tax collector? Well, a little background on just Roman history. Those of you who don't know this. You know, the Roman government, when they, would conquer, when they conquered the lands, they allowed the countries to remain somewhat autonomous, kind of like our, 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 our United States. We've got 50 states, and there's some individual uh, freedoms that the states have, and, the, and, and those freedoms have to stay consistent with our federal government. We've got some, some freedom there. Roman government ran that way. So Israel was allowed to govern themselves to a certain degree like Israelites, and Turkey was allowed to govern themselves like, like they're, you know, whatever, all the way around the horn. They ran it that way. But one thing they did do is they did require excessive taxation. And the way they ran their tax service was, was, was kind of criminal. What they would do is they would come to an area, let's say they would come to DeKalb County if this was the Roman Empire, and they would come and say, listen, we have a job opportunity for you, Mike. Here's a job opportunity. We want you to be a tax collector. We've looked at DeKalb County. We want everybody to pay $8,000 a year in taxes. Your job is to collect it all and bring it to the government office. But here's the good news for you. You can add whatever you want on top of that tax for your salary. We're not paying you salary for it. But you can add whatever you want, and whatever you add will be the law, which means that if they don't give it to you, you have the power to throw them in jail. 
So if everybody's got to pay $8,000 a year, you might say, well, you know what? Everybody's got to pay me $7,000 a year. Or everybody's got to pay me whatever. And you could add whatever you wanted. Now, once you discovered you could add whatever you wanted to that, and the people had to do it, given the fact that you're a fleshly individual, you would be tempted maybe to start with adding $500 because you're going to be a nice guy. And, and then after a while, you say, you know, I could get $600 a person. You know, $1,000 a person. And, you know, in eight or nine years, you've doubled their tax base. You know, they're paying $8,000 to the government. They're paying $8,000 to you. And you could throw them in jail if they don't give it to you. Now, you do that to us. How do we feel about you? Traitor! You're one of us. This is your home. How could you be ripping us off this way? You'd be saying, I don't care, man. I'm rich. You'd be building big houses, throwing big parties. You'd be living this wild life all on the burden that you placed on us. Okay? Sorry, Mike. Really made you the enemy there. Okay? He just came back from the Czech Republic, and, you know, he's probably like off in la-la land from jet lag, so that's why I could pick on him. So, no, I'm kidding. He did just come back, though. So this is the tax collector. Now you've got to add one more component. The Jews hated the Roman government. So this is somebody in cahoots with the evil Roman Empire, ripping off his own countrymen. This is not a liked individual. Tax collectors are just wretched. So there's our contrast. Incredibly, humanly perfect guy up against this wretched traitor. These two guys go into the temple to pray. Now look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's an interesting prayer. But what I want you to notice before we look at his prayer is his location. The location of both of these guys are described in the parable. Important to catch it. Notice the Pharisee standing by himself. Now, the reason why this is important to note is you have to catch something. You, you hear a Pharisee going into the temple to pray, and you don't, probably don't think much of that. Pharisees did not go into the temple. The Pharisees worshipped in the synagogues. Synagogue started during the Babylonian Empire when the Babylonians came in and drove the Israelites into exile. When they were driven into exile, they couldn't worship in Jerusalem, so they formed these little worship centers all over the place. What, you know, very similar to a local church setting. The law was read, a teacher taught, people sang. You know, much our church experience is predicated on the synagogue, actually. And, uh, and, and they, were, they were everywhere. When the temple was being rebuilt, it never fully got finished. Eventually got finished, got destroyed again, and then rebuilt a second time. But when it was rebuilt a second time, Herod helped rebuild it, and Herod was a half-Gentile, half-Jew. So the Pharisees really devoted to the law of God said the temple's defiled. It's a defiled place. They never went there. So the uniqueness of this prayer is that you have a Pharisee going to a temple to pray, to the temple to pray. And when he goes to the temple, everyone knows he's not going to enter in because they're all liberal. Right? They're just just liberal, weak people who have violated the law of God. So he's going to 
be by himself. He doesn't even want to touch these people lest he get defiled. But he's praying there. So there's, there's a unique tension here in this. I could imagine Pharisees standing there going, to the temple? Ugh, I can't believe he'd do this. But it sets up the tension of the story. So now he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now why does he say this? Well, what's the focus of his prayer? He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in himself, actually. He's pleased with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like that. I remember one time somebody came up to me, visitor actually, so there's nobody here, and, uh, but to, to church here, they were visiting, and they came up to me, and they said, oh, nice to meet you, pastor. Um, can I pray for you? I'm sure no one prays for you, that's what the person said, and I'd like to be the one to pray for you. I said, there's lots of people who pray for me, but if you want to pray for me, sure. So he takes me off into the kitchen there, starts to pray for me. Very interesting prayer. He says, God, thank you that you moved in my heart to pray for this pastor. Thank you that I was responsive to your spirit. Lord, help me be responsive to your spirit even more so that I can encourage other people like I'm encouraging this pastor right now. Thank you, God, that you use me in this way. Whole prayer was about himself. Three minutes later, I'm like, hmm, that's the first time someone's ever prayed for me and never prayed for me. I'm like, if no one prayed for me, still no one has after that prayer. And afterwards, I prayed for him, and, and then that's it. It was done. And I thought about that prayer this week because I thought, that's the essence of this Pharisee's prayer. God, just thank you. And maybe he's thanking God. God, thank you that, that you've made me different. Thank you that you've set me apart. Thank you that I'm not in that situation like those people over there. And then he lists them out, right? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, right? People who take advantage of others and people who, you, you know, steal from people, people who don't treat marriage with disrespect. Man, I hold my marriage high. I treat everybody fair. I don't take advantage of people. I'm the best business guy to deal with. God, you just blessed me with so much. Thank you, God, for this position I'm in and how great things are in my life. And thank you that I'm definitely not like that guy over there who sold out to the Roman government Steals from people, rips people off. What did he do? It's himself as the standard. In fact, notice how he makes himself the standard. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now that's huge if you think about it. Just those two things alone. Two days a week he forfeits food just to pray the whole day. Think about that. Somebody who prays 48 hours a week. I'm sure he sleeps some in there, but that's a lot of prayer. This guy probably bests a lot of us in prayer as far as a guy who's really committed. Can you imagine meeting a guy who says, man, it's two days a week. I don't need it. I just pray to God. And then every time I get something, whatever it is, I give a portion of it to the temple. This would be a guy, no joke, Josephus, the historian, records this truth, that these, some of these Pharisees were so committed to tithing that when they came to your house for dinner, a portion of their food, they would cut off their plate 
to give and bring to the priests in the temple. I mean, they're at your house carving up your mashed potatoes. Okay, that's for the priest. And cut that piece of meat off. That's for them. Take the beans. And that's, I'm going to take this plate. Excuse me a second. I'll come back and fellowship with you in a minute. I'm going to go take this to the priests in the temple because they need it. Do you do that? <laughs> that's pretty intense. I mean, you know, we, we trash on the Pharisees, and, and, and there's lots of things to trash on them for, but, but from an external basis, if you met somebody like this, you'd be thinking, this is the man. That is intense commitment. But what's his problem? His problem is he's looking at himself in comparison to others. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, how do we do that? I know, I guarantee none of you would be offering a prayer like that. And I don't think any of you would stand up here and say, oh God, thank you that I'm not like Steve over here, gets distracted with lawnmowers, you know, like I stay focused in church. He doesn't, right? You know, I mean, whatever it is, you know, I don't think you would do that. So the question is, how do we do it? How do we do this? I was giving that some thought this week, kind of just my mind pondering and I was thinking, I think there's two ways that, that, that this is prevalent in our culture. Two ways where, where we could be deceived into living a life where we're the standard and, uh, and not really trusting God. Let me give them to you. The two ways are this. The first way is through what I'm just going to call shame. Shame. I said, what? Why shame? Sometimes you can stand there and look at yourself and be dissatisfied. God, why don't you make me like that person? God, they're so much better. Their family's so much better than my family. Why didn't you give me this situation? Oh, their life was so much better than my life. Their marriage is so much better than my marriage. Right? I can get in a situation where I compare myself to others from the position of the negative or shame. And, and I can forget that I have everything God wants me to have to bring glory to him in the way he wants me to give glory in the path he designed for me. And I can begin to start comparing myself to you and saying, wow, if I had your salary, it would be a lot easier to live. If I had your home, it would be a lot easier for me to raise my family. If I, if I, right, you understand it. But that's just a comparison thing, isn't it? It's a comparison from the negative, but you get dissatisfied. The moment that subtlety comes in, when I am comparing myself to you in the negative, I'm doing what this Pharisee did. I'm, I'm living my life with just only peripheral vision, just looking at you. It's a comparative heart. There's another way that we can compare. We can compare with pride. I think that's the other way, and that's the way that's present in this story here. You could roll your eyes. Oh, I can't believe they did that. Can't believe that happened. Can you believe what they said? Oh, right. I would have never said that. Can't believe they let their kids do that. I'd never let my kids do that. Right? Again, comparison. It's a comparison from arrogance. Can't believe they think that way. I can't believe they do that way. I can't believe this does it that way. We can walk around kind of like I would never do that. I knew, you know, and what are you doing? Comparative heart. What does a comparative heart do? A comparative heart will, will always do one thing. A comparative heart always pulls people away. That's why this Pharisee standing by himself. It pulls you away. 
A comparisoned heart from a shame standpoint gets bitter, I think, don't you think? You get bitter, you know, they have it better than I do, woe is me, it's not fair, I'm not going to listen to them, everything's all perfect in their life. They didn't have the childhood I had, right? Compare, bitter, resentment, you start resenting, I'm not going to hang around those people anymore, they think they're so much better than me. Okay, so what do you do? You pull away. What does a prideful heart do? Prideful heart pulls away. I'm not going there anymore. I can't be around those people. He's saying, listen, when you trust in yourself, you treat others with contempt. This is why he's telling the story. The moment you're the standard, content, con, con, not contentment, con, what's the word? Contempt. Contempt, yeah, thank you. <laughs> contempt becomes the flow. It will flow out of your heart because the comparative heart measures itself against the heart of another person and will always become resentful, bitter, judgmental, roll your eyes. And it's amazing. The moment someone does something that we would never do, the first thought in our mind is, I would never do that. Isn't that right? And then it's easy to go, oh, you know what? I can't do that anymore. Because, oh, right? You just get that kind of snidey, all those weird noises come out of your mouth. It's just, it's just not good. And we struggle with that. Because either people are, everyone's better than us, or everyone's worse than us. Comparative heart. And a comparative heart, like I said, always drives you away from people. Always does. But there's a second reality of a comparative heart that you have to know that Jesus makes clear. The second is this. A comparative heart is not walking by faith. So it doesn't matter if you can articulate to me propitiatory, substitutionary atonement. It doesn't matter. Because what Jesus asked for was, when I come back, I want to find people who can articulate the ordo salutis of the gospel perfectly. He didn't say that. What did he say? When I come back, will I find faith? He made it crystal clear what he's looking for. And we cannot substitute right doctrine for faith. Now, I'm a proponent of right doctrine. That's why we preach expositionally. But what I don't want to get caught in is such a love of, of, of abstract truth without faith that inadvertently we become a Pharisee and we stand there and condemn people because Jesus says, that's what I hate. I'm not coming back for that. I'm coming back for a different heart. A different heart. And so you've got to take a good, honest look at your heart and say, man, am I bitter? Am I judgmental? Am I pulling away from people? Am I creating a little cocoon? I'm creating my own little world over here with only people that I like that measure up to my standard. If they don't measure up to my standard, I'm kicking them out. And I'm no longer going to engage people. I'm no longer going to be in the body of Christ. I'm no longer going to be around the people of God because I don't want to go there because they're not meeting my standards. Jesus, don't do that. You want to endure to the end. You cannot have a comparative heart. That's what he's getting at. Now, what then is faith? Leads us to the next one, the contrite heart. The contrite heart is the justified heart. This is the heart that gets it right. It sees it. You want to endure to the end, 
Here's the lesson. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now you notice the two locations, right? The, the Pharisee standing by himself. Intentionally, I'm not going near you. This guy's far off. What's the difference between being by yourself versus standing far off? They could be in the same place in the building, but for two different reasons. We know one thing about this tackler. He does not feel worthy to be in the presence of God. He's far off because he recognizes his sin. The tax collector is by himself because he sees his righteousness. He's protecting his righteousness. And the tax, tax collector says, no, I have no righteousness. I got nothing. I only bring my sin. And I'm not worthy to be in your presence. So notice the way it's described. He's standing far off. He's not even going to lift his eyes to heaven. Right? Total humility. Beating his breast. So, so the picture here is a guy basically on his knees crying and just hitting himself out of complete recognition that he's got nothing. Got nothing to bring to God. And what I want you to notice is the way that he prays. Take notice how he prays. When he prays, he asks for mercy. He asks for mercy. Now just stop and think about that. When you are only living, reformers used to call it this, coram Deo, before the face of God. When you're only living before the face of God, what does not come out of your mouth is bitterness. You know, what, what, what wasn't in his prayers? He wasn't sitting there beating his breast saying, God, if only you had given me a family that had some money, then I wouldn't have had to have gone over here to, the, to, to work and, and, and steal from people. If, if only I had parents that could have provided for me. If, or if you knew my, 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 my life and you knew my, my home life, you'd know I was forced into this. Or my dad didn't set a good example for me and it's just not fair. Right? None of that stuff was coming out of his mouth. He wasn't crying because he's comparing himself to others, saying, if I had their life, I wouldn't be here. If I had their life, I'd be walking by faith. He's coming before God, just saying, God, I am a sinner. That's it. And I need one thing. I need mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is when God withholds what you deserve. When God withholds. The prophets in the Old Testament, when the judgment was coming to Israel, Habakkuk, he's praying, he knows judgment's coming. He says to God, God, in your wrath, please remember mercy. Dial it back a little bit. You know, don't, don't, don't give us what we deserve. In wrath, remember mercy. Why? He knows he deserves the wrath of God. When someone cries out for mercy, they're taking ownership of their own heart. When you have a comparative heart, you don't take ownership of your heart. You make excuses. You either boast or make excuses. If your sin is discovered, you, you want to defend it and deflect it. And It's not my fault. It's just not my fault. Situations were different. Right? A heart that lives quorum deus, somebody, and when their sin is exposed, they say, you're right. Man, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. They haven't even gotten close to the sin that's in them. 
you really knew what was in there. And you know what's great about God, what I love about God, is that God is so awesome that he will show you the fullness of your sin, but he's also so awesome that he's made a way for mercy to come, right? That he poured all that wrath out on Jesus so that he's not angry. And so when this guy cries out for mercy, guess what he gets? Mercy. You know what's great about mercy, too, is that mercy is all-encompassing. The reason why I want to say this is that when you confess your sins, you never confess them to the depth of what they really are. You ever notice that? Like if you really were going to confess your sins, you'd have to be talking, like, just one sin. You'd have to be thinking about it. You tell a fib, a kid tells a fib to their parents, and they're dishonoring God, they're dishonoring the authority of God, they're dishonoring the parents. I mean, you, you could just start unpacking the fullness of that sin. It's a devaluing of truth. It's a devaluing of the character and nature of God because God is a God of truth. God hates lying, so it's participating in the deeds of darkness. Satan is a liar, which means you're following after the principality of the air. Right? I mean, seriously, if you really want to confess your sin, no one could ever get down to the depth of his sin. But what you notice about this guy is he just says, have mercy. And God says, mercy. You get it. It's great. Mercy covers the depths of the sin that you don't have the capacity to confess. It's incredible how merciful mercy is. And so when you compare yourself to God, you suddenly begin to see who you really are, but then you begin to see who God is. And you can cry out for mercy. And I want you to notice how Jesus sums this up. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what's he saying? He's saying, now listen, this point of this parable is who are you trusting in? Yourself or God? This man saw his sin no comparative heart in that sin, just his life before God, cried out for mercy. And then Jesus says the most powerful words, he went to his house justified. What does that word mean? 150% completely right with God. 100% settled. He has no fear when the return of Christ comes and we stand before God judge of the living and the dead. He will be blameless and stand there with great joy. Notice what this man did not do. This man, when he was done with that prayer, got up and still had a bunch of ill-gotten gain in his banking account. All this man did is he cried out for mercy. And he gets mercy, and along with that mercy comes a completely right standing with God. But that completely right standing with God can't come in the excuse-ridden world we want to live in. It's not my fault. If only I had, if that, da, 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 and all those things that we put on there. What are we doing? We're not coming for God saying, God, I am a sinner. We're not doing that. And therefore, Jesus said, well, this is faith. Faith means I come before God with my heart alone, crying for mercy. And God gives the mercy. This man has a right standing 
this Pharisee had no standing with God. And this is why Jesus made the statement, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The moment you compare yourself to someone else, whether it's by pride or shame, you're exalting yourself because you're the standard. Either I'm not good enough or I'm better than you. But either way, I'm looking to myself. I'm not standing before God saying, God, I know who you are and I know who I am and I need your mercy. But he says, boy, you do that, you come before God, you'll have a right standing with him. He will lift you out of the ashes. He will place you in his presence and you will know him in full for all eternity. You want to be ready for the return of Jesus. A contrite heart is the way. You want to be not ready for the return of Jesus? Obsess on the dates and compare yourself to others. And you won't. How do you know if you're being judgmental? Bitterness, withdrawal, cocooning of your life, attitudes, rolling of your eyes towards people. It's showing that you have created a standard that you're trying to force people to measure up to. And it's not right. So, the point is simple. The way you have a right standing before God is not to clean up your life. It's to go for mercy. It's to lay it before him. God will clean up. You know what's going to happen in a few pages in Luke here? We're going to see this story played out in full because there's going to be a man by the name of Zacchaeus who was a wee little man. Thank you. And he was a tax collector. And you know what this wee little man did? He climbed a tree. Want to see Jesus? Right, we're gonna, we'll sing that song, right? Jesus takes him to his house. The guy sees his life before Jesus, and what does he do? First response is he gets up from, from being justified, and he gives his money back. Jesus didn't say, give the money back, and then we'll make things right. He said, come to me for mercy, and you'll get mercy. And Once you're in the love and the mercy of Jesus, man, then you want to follow him. And what flows out of that is the guy is giving the money back with interest. So let's kind of wrap this up here. Let's kind of put some, some wrappings around this. What I want you to notice about this man and his asking for mercy is I want you to realize something. Mercy is not a, a, a God overlooking sin. Isn't that right? It's not that. Mercy is not, it's God dealing with his sin. So what's he ultimately asking for? God, I deserve your wrath. Is there some way you can put it somewhere else? And God said, yeah, there is. Mercy is the greatest cry for the cross that you could ever have because the cross of God was the place where God says, I'm going to put my wrath, my anger, everything, I'm going to crush this one so that you could receive mercy and be seated at my table like we saw. There it is. And mercy, in order to really step into that cross-centered mercy, we have to recognize we are sinners. We're not right. No excuses. No, I'm better than this person or better than that person. We're not right. And so the point here that you have to catch from this text, is very critical. The application of this moment is not for you to start coming down with a list of every sin you committed this week. Don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. Jesus told this story for a reason, and, he, and I think there's one specific application he wants you to get. He wants you to look to see, 
Do you have a comparative heart? So this isn't about saying, okay, let's make a grocery list. Come line up here. Come up here. Tell me everything you've done wrong, and then you'll have mercy. The bigger question is, do I see myself pulling away? Do I see myself condemning others? Do I see myself rolling my eyes at others? Do I see myself getting bitter because I think their life's better than my life? Do I see myself thinking that they're worse than I am because they do that? Or they raise their kids this way and therefore they're worse? Or I never want to be in a church that has people like that in it. Do I, do I sense that attitude? If that comparative heart is there, this is what he wants us to bring to the mercy of God. There is the sin you have to bring. God, I'm living my life before the face of man, not before the face of you. And so this is why I say, what I want you to get from this is that search for that inner Pharisee. What is it inside? Where, how does your comparative heart show up? And that's what you need to bring to God. That's it. Because we want to live our life before his face alone. So I wrote a prayer for myself this week. I want to share it with you. I'm not sharing with you this has to be your prayer. But as I was working on this this week, I wrote a prayer out that I wanted to pray for myself. And here's the prayer. God, show me where I am arrogant and pulling away from others because I'm judging them. And show me where I've become resentful of others because they seem to be better than me. God, the issue is that I need the mercy that comes through what Jesus did for me on the cross. Allow me to live there. So I'm just going to ask you to pray your prayer right now. Just bow your head, and I'm going to pray, and you pray. Wherever it is, the comparative heart, because we all struggle with it, that's what we want to bring before God, because we want to be ready for his return. This is what real faith is. So just join me in prayer. Father, we are people who just pull away from others the moment something happens that we don't like. We are people who look down on others. We roll our eyes when things happen the ways that we would never do it. Lord, we're not talking about people who are doing horrendous sins. We, we do it for, for little things. The way people put their kids to bed. The types of foods that they choose to eat. The types of drinks they choose to drink. We, are, we can be so nitpicky. and We can become so bitter because we feel someone else has it better than we do and it's not fair. It is amazing how that comparative heart is just there all the time. But Lord, I thank you for your mercy that, that, that you know we're that way. You told this parable because we're that way. And you told this parable to remind us that you're merciful and you're kind and you're good. And we can come before you as sinners saying, God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that, that, that you made things right there. And you even bore the sin for our comparative hearts. Lord, allow us to live truly before your face, not comparing ourselves to others, but to you alone. Help us find our comfort there, our hope there, our meaning there. Set us free from the bondage that is in a comparative heart. 
and allow us to walk in the joy of your mercy. God, I thank you that we can pray this, that you will respond quickly, that we have the hope of your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.